hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. It's 2600 BC in Egypt, a tomb site deep in the desert. You're not sure exactly where you are. The crew boss keeps that kind of detail secret. It's safer that way. But you do know that something is wrong, really wrong. Your partner, who just moments ago was directing you, playfully critiquing your chiseling technique, has gone silent. In fact, everything seems to be just waiting like an ominous silence before a storm. It started with a grating shudder, the feeling and sound of shifting earth and rock. Suddenly, half the chamber you're suspended in collapses. The judgment of the gods is swift and mighty indeed. A wall of stone and rock tumble down between you and your companion. You come too, dazed, but you realize you're on your back. It's pitch dark and your head throbs. You reach down to see why your abdomen feels wet and it comes away dripping. You know it's blood. You call out for your partner, so weakly that you wonder if he'd hear you even if he wasn't probably dead already. And you know no one is coming. And why would they? The boss has plenty more just like you and his crew. You know you're expendable. They might risk their lives to pull looted grave treasures to the surface, but not some common crew member. Entombed yourself now in this pile of rubble, you'd trade all the gold in the world never to have taken this risk in the first place, even to feed your hungry family. Hey there, I'm Dr. Karen Bellinger anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to another episode of Working Over Time, where we examine society through the lens of work, over time, and across cultures. On today's episode, our season one finale, we'll tag along with the intrepid Katie Paul, peeking over the shoulders of Tomb Raiders, ancient and modern, and shining a light on some really dirty black market secrets. Katie shares her frontline research and tireless actions to expose and thwart the modern illicit antiquities trade, right where it flourishes, on social media. We're looking at you, Facebook. Yeah, you heard that right. Nothing much to like about it. Keep listening to hear the shocking truths of this ageless underground career and the threats it poses to cultural heritage around the globe. Best of all, we'll learn simple steps that each and every one of us can take each and every day to stop it. So, kit up and cue the theme from Raiders of the Lost Ark. We are going to the digital underground. Today, our guest is Katie Paul. Katie is an anthropologist and archaeoactivist fighting to combat illicit antiquities trafficking in the Middle East. She received two bachelor's degrees from Miami University, Ohio, one in anthropology and the other in ancient Greek, 
and she received an MA in anthropology from the George Washington University. She has studied and conducted fieldwork around the world, including Egypt, Israel, San Salvador, and Bahamas. She is co-director of the Antiquities Trafficking and Heritage Anthropology Research Project, an investigative study digging into the digital underworld of transnational trafficking, terrorism financing, and organized crime. Her work focuses on the trafficking and destruction of cultural property and its connections to transnational crime and terrorism in the Middle East and North Africa, focusing on the role of social media and new technologies. Katie, so excited to have you with us today to talk about Tomb Raiders and modern trafficking on the internet. Great to be here. So I'm gonna ask you in a, in a second to kind of give us the 101, the context for how we're gonna focus our discussion. But first, could you please define for us uh, what an archaeoactivist is? An archaeoactivist is really um, someone who's going outside of their discipline and their typical field and working across fields to protect cultural heritage. And we see this from people on the ground, just people in their own communities being archaeoactivists, and people in academia who have studied it for years. It's something that anybody can do, and more people should strive to work across fields and really find ways to protect heritage around the world. Yeah, and I have to say, I obviously, as an archaeologist myself, and having gone through um, a lot of schooling to, to, to get that credential have, have learned quite a bit about issues to do with looting and illicit artifact trade. But I think that your angle on this, which really brings in the ubiquity of technology and social media communications, particularly in the modern age, is going to be really eye-opening for everyone. I, I know it, it has been already for me. So thank you so much for, for taking on this really important subject matter, first of all, but also being willing to, to share with us uh, how we can, we can be a part of solving a problem. Wonderful. And the more people, the, the more protection we see for heritage. So there are basic things people can do in their everyday lives to really make an effort to protect heritage in their own communities. And the more, the better. Yeah. And we'll be sure to leave time at the end to talk a little bit about that in, in terms of actionable steps. But okay, let's dive into our conversation. Um, I'd love to get the 101 from you, just a little context. Where are we? When are we in time when we're talking about Tomb Raiders? Well, first we have to think about what period of Tomb Raiders we're talking about. Tomb robbing actually began uh, in ancient Egypt, for instance, around 3100 BC. That's over 5,000 years ago. So this is a criminal profession that started thousands of years ago, and it's just as prevalent now, but with a lot of new technologies. And just like any sort of crime, a lot of this can also come out of the issue of wealth disparities in ancient culture and modern culture. It's something that's really capitalized on by powerful people both in the past and now. So where will you take us to get a sort of a slice of this, this um, criminal activity which has been going on for over 5,000 years? For this particular tomb raiding, we're going to go to somewhat of a cliche that everybody thinks of, and that's ancient Egypt. Ancient Egypt has really been focused on in movies. I mean, famously, Indiana Jones went to Cairo. Um, you have the entire mummy series that focuses on 
tomb raiding and robbing in the ancient world and and modern history for that instance. And that's something that I think is a really good picture for what people see and breaking apart what we see on TV versus reality is incredibly important. All right, excellent. Well, drop us in the shoes of a looter getting ready for their typical day tomb robbing in ancient Egypt. How does their day start out? What are they thinking about? Well, you have to imagine it's 2600 BC, and depending on the time of year, it can be a nice cool 70 to up to 122 degrees, and particularly in the desert. So first you're gonna think about what you're going to eat that day, how you're gonna access water, and then you're going to think about what your job is for that evening. And it's not something that you can do alone. You have to have tools, water, lamps. You really need to have an entire team to conduct this activity. So the first thing you're going to do is meet up with your buddies. So you, you, you have to have buddies you trust. <laughs> you have to have buddies you trust or at least have enough money to make sure that people aren't going to rat you out. Wow, it's tricky already. Okay, so what kind of equipment? You talk about equipment. I know what I would take on a dig. Um, I, I assume they need some of the same items. So they would need similar items, but less technique, for instance. Uh, of course, you need to have people carrying water. You're going to be going out into the desert. You're going to be working hard. Uh, you don't want to dehydrate because getting the stuff out is only half the job. You also have to get it back. So you're going to have tools for um, and, and people for carrying water. When it gets dark at night, you're definitely going to need lamps because whether it's daytime or not, you're going to need them in the tomb. And during the evening, it's even worse. So you're going to need to have lamps and you're going to need material to keep those lamps going. You're also going to need tools to dig into the tomb. And we'll talk about, depending on what type of tomb this is, um, what exactly you would need to be doing. But you don't just have to break through. That's half the battle. You have to get the stuff out. So you're going to be a, something that is going to need to be able to carry heavy materials, um, possibly in bundles, and you have to leave with more stuff than you came with. So you don't want to have your arms too full when you get there. Um, right. There's a lot of balance that goes into this, and that's also why you need a team of people. What if somebody gets hurt? Are you going to rely on them for carrying something? Um, it's it's a, a gang activity in order to have the most successful attempt at what you're going to steal from that tomb. Yeah, I actually never thought about that in the way, in the way you put it, that you not only have to bring back everything you loot, but you have to bring back what you brought in, I, I guess, unless you're willing to just leave that behind, but then you wouldn't have it for the next job. <laughs> so it's an interesting angle. All right. Well, do we have any records anywhere to understand some of the approaches these tomb raiders took uh, in terms of written records? Or is it more what we can you know, dedu deduce from what we see in the ground? One of the fascinating things about ancient Egypt that makes it so appealing is that it was a well-recorded uh, period of time. Ancient Egyptians recorded everything from, you know, who someone was that goes into their tomb at the end of their life to disputes that happened at the local city level, police records. And it's from these police records that we can actually see what was happening with tomb robbers in the ancient world and what the kind of, what kind of punishments they would be incurring. That's amazing. It's really incredible. 
<laughs> so it's like they had the equivalent of a police department and detective agencies with information or not so much detective agencies, sorry, but so they would have police records with files, uh, like criminal case files and, and looted sites documented. Yes, exactly. It would be a record that's explaining why somebody was there. And in the case of tomb robbers, they were there because they were stealing from a tomb and damaging somebody's chance at the afterlife. So there's an important set of documents known as the Amherst Papyrus, and they date back to 1100 BC. So we're talking around um, just over 3000 years ago. Oh my gosh. (laughs) They are part of the original court records dealing with tomb robberies under Ramses IX. And so these records, they tell a tale of eight men who broke into a tomb. So that gang angle we were talking about, this is a perfect example. You have eight guys that broke into a tomb, and these are their confessions, essentially. Um, A description of and reconstruction of the crime itself is part of these records, which give us a really incredible window into what tomb robbers were doing in the past. And it also can confirm a lot of the archaeological findings we're seeing um, when when we do encounter tombs that have been robbed in the past today. Uh, They give us great insights into why Egyptians went from building large monumental tombs like the Great Pyramids to tucking burials away into the side of a mountain like in the Valley of the Kings. So these eight men stole roughly $800,000 worth of gold by today's value standards. That's no small stash. So even by today, that's an incredible cache of, of gold. And um, that's also very valuable. So the records really just detail that gold is what they got first. And that was always something that we've assumed. The most valuable items that you're going to grab first are going to be gold and silver. Not only do they carry a, a great value, but they can also be melted down. And so it's easy to show that they weren't from a tomb if you can melt them down into blocks or nuggets that you can trade on the market. And we see it actually with the illicit gold trade today. This would be kind of a laundering method. You're melting things down from their original form um, to be able to put them into a form that's unrecognizable and not traceable. Um, It also helps mask the crime. So you're going to go for the gold first. Other things that tomb robbers, although it's not clear in this scenario, but in the past, if tomb robbers were going to go for something else, they're going to go for perfumes and textiles. Those are things that you could also trade into the market. They're not necessarily discernible from a tomb, although depending on the wealth of the person, if we're talking about a pharaoh, they might be more identifiable because only pharaohs could afford some things that the average person trading in a market couldn't. And then last would be kind of the larger items, the chariots and things like that. And those are things that would not be taken right away. You're going to get noticed if you're, if you're, running through the night with a chariot that doesn't belong to you. So, <laughs> Maybe they could load stuff onto it though. I don't know. <laughs> it's too fancy for these guys. So that's something that could be broken apart later to, to more easily be moved. But when it, we don't know what exactly happened to these particular, these particular looters that were in the Amherst papyrus. However, other papyri have told us uh, what, robbers went through if they were caught looting a tomb. It was actually considered one of the worst crimes imaginable. 
because the ancient Egyptian belief about the afterlife was that the life you have now is just preparing you for the more important afterlife. And that's why Egyptians were buried with so many goods. They had goods wrapped into, um, into their linens as, as they were embalmed. They had goods surrounding them. Just everything they would need for the afterlife was to go with them. And for a pharaoh, those items would often be gold. They would be gilded. Um, they would be highly valuable. And it included like everyday, the everyday items, as I understand it too, right? Like their food and clothing, and even in some cases, servants to continue taking after them, which is a bit gruesome. But so it's, it's like everything, everything they would need in an afterlife, not just valuables. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. And I mean, we still see tombs found today with wine and cheese in them. Whether or not you should eat those, I wouldn't advise it, but you know, <laughs> yeah, some people are not. adventurous, you never know. Um, but everything that they would need for the afterlife was buried with them. And that was a commonality in the culture. That also means that people knew everything you needed was buried with you and for the taking when you were moving on to the afterlife, which is one of the things that made tomb robbing so popular. But to damage a tomb and to take those items, um, let's say those items are shop teeth. Those are, those are important to take with you in the afterlife. Um, or, you know, if the, it was a canoptic jar, if you don't have your organs, how can you function in the afterlife? And right. so those type of items, you're damaging somebody's chances to their afterlife. And it was a, if it was a pharaoh, that was incredibly serious. And as such, the crime was even punishable by death. So the, the, the punishment for a crime like this could range from beatings with a rod on the soles of the feet or flogging, um, or they could be as severe as amputation of the hands or the nose or even death by impalement or death by burning. Um, so it was a very serious crime and you were risking a lot to undertake it. And that's, that's really not unlike what we see today. Um, people are risking a lot to, to, to engage in these crimes, but that's because the chances of a high payoff are pretty high. $800,000 worth of gold would have been huge if these guys could get away with it. And in some cases, they could even pay off the, the police to ensure they weren't paid. If they had a really good haul, they could pay their share of the haul to the police, go back to their buddies, and then just be given that share again because there was so much. Oh, so to buy, to buy the blind eye. <laughs> right. Politics doesn't wow. change, right? You see corruption in the ancient world just like you do today. Well, you know what? Okay, I have such a burning question, and I, I don't want to take us off the track of where we're going with, with these Tomb Raiders, but I have to ask, what do you think would induce somebody living in this culture with this presumably similar cosmological beliefs to you know, destroy somebody else's chance at the afterlife and risk their own death, which presumably would be conducted in such a way that they might not attain the afterlife. There's a really kind of a flouting of, of the gods and, and religious mores here, which is kind of interesting. There is that risk. However, um, if you pull off what you're doing uh, and, and don't lose your life as a result, you are going to have a much nicer afterlife with the money that you just got. And, you know, greed and power is what we see in a lot of crime. And 
one thing that's important to keep in mind is this is not just a crime in ancient Egypt that was conducted by the poor. Um, in fact, only the person who was the original um, robber was was subject to the, the severe punishments. So pharaohs that were ruling would actually take things out of tombs of previous pharaohs if the tomb had already been looted to a point and reuse those items for themselves. Oh, so wow. <laughs> even the most powerful were doing this because of the way the system was designed so that only the original looter was the one that would get punished. Um, in the ancient world, we see, uh, you know, the builders of the tombs who were actually people that would loot. Of course, if it was a tomb that was designed to avoid uh, or to fend off robbers, uh, a tomb of that design would be well known to the people who built it. And so it would make it easier right. for them to kind of scrape it a little off the top to help with their, uh, their retirement fund. Um, and then you have examples of the people who guarded those tombs of the pharaohs. And even the embalmers who, put, who were supposed to wrap the items in their linens with, uh, with the mummies. And so you, you have a whole range of society that would engage because the value, especially for, for the tombs of pharaohs, was something that most people would never have a chance to attain otherwise in their life. And it was simply something that was too good to resist. Oh, wow. It's so much more complex than I ever realized in this ancient time. I mean, it sounds like there was a, a good deal of uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, look the other way and slip something in my pocket as I let you walk by. And yet it, it, it sort of all smacks of, of, of gross hypocrisy at the same time, doesn't it? When they say the punishment is, is going to be so severe because the crime is so awful. <laughs> well, if, and that's only if you're at risk of getting punished. <laughs> if, you were, if you were a pharaoh, no one's going to punish you for taking something from a previous pharaoh's tomb. All right, Katie. So they've broken into this tomb, this criminal gang, and with great effort, they've gathered their loot. They've figured out how they're going to carry it all. Um, what happens next in this process? So what they would typically do, particularly for gangs of, of tomb robbers, is that they would go back to um, whatever their hideout was, where they were keeping their cache of material. And you, you can't just uh, waltz into town with armfuls of stuff you just stole from a pharaoh's tomb. So you're going to need to hide it somewhere. And you also don't want that stuff to be subject to other people stealing it from you, uh, particularly when you put in all the hard work to get it out, perhaps a cave or a, a, a hole of their own that they've dug or a previously looted tomb where they could, they could keep that material and uh, it would ah, likely not be found. So it's like their, their special warehouse, their, their criminal warehouse. Exactly. And keep in mind, we're in uh, ancient Egypt. And while it was one of the more powerful cultures in the world in that, that time, um, it still wasn't near as developed as it is today, obviously. There's going to be a lot more distance between towns, and you're going to have a lot of, um, a lot of desert space and, and really unexplored space or uninhabited space that's going to be available for people to stash goods. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. And, you know, you, you've described really um, clearly the reason that they tended to operate in gangs as opposed to individuals, you know, Indiana Jones style. Um, 
were the people who purchased the stolen antiquities or the valuables also organized into consortia or was that more of an individual basis? You know, how, how were the buyers of these stolen goods organized? Well, it depends on the good that you're selling, right? So if you're talking about um, gold and silver, things that could be melted down and made into something else, that was easier to get onto a market, possibly a clean market, where you, know, you can trade that for other goods. But when it comes to uh, things like textiles or even statues that may have been noticeable, it's not something you're going to be able to melt down if it's a wood statue that's carved after a particular pharaoh. And in that case, these items would go into uh, broader transnational networks, similar to what we see with crime today, that okay. would be able to, uh, you know, to purchase and distribute those goods as necessary. Um, keep in mind what we value today and what was valued in the past aren't necessarily the same because they weren't antiquities yet. Um, so oh, yeah, also, that old trick. <laughs> a little <laughs> age adds a lot of value. <laughs> so you also have, have that element. You know, what, what can gain value on the market today would have been something that you could buy in any, any street market back then. Right. Yeah, that's, that's its um, own really fascinating issue, isn't it? Exactly. And so what is valued now and what was valued then would be different. And therefore, the markets that move these types of materials would be a little bit different as well. Did these buyers ever commission tomb robbings? In, in the ancient world, we don't have many records that would show uh, actual like commissioning, like loot to order, for instance. Um, Ultimately, you are still going to have a tiered system where the people at the top, you know, if you're trading in gold, they're going to make more money if you're working on behalf of someone else. When you had a gang, somebody was in charge. It wasn't just a random collection of guys. Um, okay. And so you, you, just like any, any criminal network, you're still going to have someone at the top uh, that's, that's really organizing what's going on. Um, okay. For these smaller gangs, it was, it was easy to distribute cash among you everybody you know gets their piece that they worked on and that made it easy to kind of break that up and launder that material into the market did these tomb raiders need any particular credentials to to work with particular buyers or would people kind of deal with anybody who had something that was of interest any crime you need a network right and that doesn't necessarily um incur any skill so much as contacts. And much like criminal networks today, anybody can get involved. As we saw, everybody from uh, the layperson to a, a pharaoh's own court could be involved in the theft of a tomb. Yeah. And I suppose that means in some sense that uh, one's social standing or connections might make one a more successful tomb robber in terms of the profit you could gain from it. Absolutely. And that also depends on whether or not you were the first to loot the tomb. I mean, tomb robbing was so prevalent that keep in mind when we think about King Tut's tomb, for instance, it's one of the most famous globally. That's not because King Tut was particularly powerful. He was a young guy. He didn't reign very long. Um, it's not because his tomb was particularly impressive. It's very small because he died so early. It's because right. it wasn't looted. 
it was intact and finding an intact tomb was so rare that that's really what the magnificence around the Tut find was. If you've ever been to Tut's tomb, it's small. It's essentially Yeah, no, I have been there. It is small. I mean, it's it's obviously really evocative for a modern person to walk in because it's so iconic. But yeah, you're right. The legend gets ahead of him. And and he was kind of a sickly guy. He wasn't, you know, like Nefertiti is known for her beauty. He wasn't a handsome fellow. Um, and so this is the kind of thing that we have that this crime was so prevalent. Even today, we are amazed at just finding a tomb that's intact, let alone looking into what's in it. Right. Well, and that's a perfect segue because I am really interested to hear everything you have to share with us about how this sort of activity continues in the modern day and is exacerbated, as we've said up front, by technologies that everybody uses and may not realize are involved in this kind of illicit trade. It would be great if we could start with a brief overview of your work as an archaeoactivist and with the Athar Project particularly. The Athar our project was created uh, in response to kind of a, a find that we stumbled upon, which was a vast antiquities trafficking network happening right on Facebook. And we're not just talking about items being offered for sale. We actually were able to see the looting process as it was happening. People will post Facebook Live videos while looting a tomb, asking for advice. How much further should they go? It's what? really what? Wait, 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 wait. Sorry. I mean, li- literally, that's that's the ultimate crazy selfie. Well, it really is, but it also generates a lot of attention, um, and there's a reason for this and why it's kind of exploding online now and. For that, we have to go back to 2011 uh, and the Arab Spring. And during the Arab Spring, uh, all across the Middle East and North Africa, the uprisings also meant that security forces in countries were in a crisis. Uh, Regimes were shifting. And that that issue drew, drew attention away from protection at archaeological sites. And that crisis allowed a lot of people to begin looting at archaeological sites that were previously under protection. Um, and this, we're not talking this just one day, this, this drew out over months. And after that, the economy in the region really fell apart and created a lot more desperation, a lot more opportunity for criminal networks to take advantage of people who were in desperate situations. Um, and, and it's really exacerbated looting across the region and in a lot of parts of the world even, we see this same pattern. Um, but that was also paired with a rise in social media globally and technology okay. in the Middle East. Access to smartphones wasn't just something that wealthy people had anymore. Everybody had a smartphone. Everybody had a camera. That's one of the things that made the uprising so amazing. They were organized online. But just like incredible things can be organized online, the expansion of social media globally with few um, checks and balances on what content was being allowed also allowed criminal networks to co-opt those social platforms like Facebook and actually use them to facilitate trafficking. 
everything from antiquities to wildlife to drugs can be found for sale right on Facebook. It's really incredible because it's so easy to get a social media account uh, barred, switched off, put on, put on probation, what have you, for violating whatever rules. How is it possible that this kind of activity has continued? Well, when it comes to antiquities trafficking, for instance, Facebook actually didn't have any explicit policies banning that activity on the platform until June of this past year. And that was after roughly two years of uh, Author Project really pushing and advocating for a policy um, on the platform. But ultimately, a policy is only as good as its enforcement. And just like with you know, antiquities, we've seen similar with endangered wildlife has been banned for sale on the platform for years, but it, it's not enforced. So we see cheetahs, which are endangered, for instance, sold frequently on Facebook. And this is something that is going to require a lot more oversight from the world's largest social media company. Um, in the meantime, this also provides an incredibly important window into how this activity is taking place and in some cases the only proof that an artifact ever existed because we see items like egyptian coffins offered while they're still in the ground unbelievable and and this is and is, is this another case in which you know it's basically that that selfie from the field look fresh fresh blood <laughs> this is fresh dirt Yes, exactly. Except people are very careful not to include their faces because just like in the past, um, tomb robbing today incurs severe punishment. And in Egypt, for instance, uh, engaging in looting or trafficking of Egypt's cultural heritage could get you up to life in prison. So this isn't something that's taken lightly. But similar to the past, uh, to move an item so big, it involves gangs. It involves a lot of people who are willing to take on that risk and have a stake in this activity. And we see criminal networks actually operating in gangs today, um, not just in, in the Middle East, but parts of North Africa. We see it in South America. And it's really uh, expanded as a result of social media. But one of the important things to keep in mind is just like any black market trade, there has to be a market, there has to be a demand. And what was once just gold that could be stolen from a tomb is now a priceless antiquity because we're talking thousands of years later. Right. And right. that market and that demand is really primarily centered in the West, in North America, the UK, and Europe. And so what is taken from a tomb in Egypt can easily be laundered onto the market for antiquities and sold today in uh, New York on Fifth Avenue. That's the ultimate fence, right? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, do, but don't they require a prevenience? So what is, what is entered in that blank space that says prevenience? Um, well, I think it's what is missing. <laughs> and that is a lack of due diligence because that, the, the way that the art and antiquities market works, there's not a lot of transparency. You, as the buyer of an object, don't necessarily have the right to know who's selling it. So you just have to accept that the auction house or dealer that you're getting that 
that item from has done their due diligence and that the provenance of that item is legal and legitimate. But in a lot of cases, those provenances are made up. And that's something we see with antiquities, even ones that have made their way to the Metropolitan Museum. So just last year, the Metropolitan Museum in New York had to return a gilded sarcophagus to Egypt that it had purchased from a dealer in Paris. This dealer, who has now been charged with money laundering, faked the provenance of that item. And that item had actually been looted in 2011 during the Arab Spring, during that period of crisis that we just talked about. And this is the Metropolitan Museum in New York. And that just goes to show you how easy it is for these items, even incredible ones worth $4 million, um, can be laundered into the legitimate market. And where the demand is, which is a lot of it is in the U.S. and Europe. So this paired with a globalized economy and globally expanded social media platforms has really become the perfect storm for trafficking of ancient objects. They don't have to exchange as many hands before if you on the ground can get on Facebook and find a dealer ready in Turkey to to put it onto the market. Yeah, and and I think I'd add to your your list there that it it sounds like we we do have people at all levels of of these organizations that are shifting these these antiquities from their resting places into the rarefied halls of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. You know, pl- plenty of people still willing to kind of turn that blind eye, just like they did in ancient Egypt. Exactly, and. There are a lot of calls for changes in the art market and the way that regulations um, occur in in countries where there are a lot of buyers. But part of this is also the result of simply fractured regulation globally. Every country has different laws and different rules about antiquities. For instance, it's legal in the U.S., in France, um, in Germany, in China to buy antiquities at an auction house. Uh, there is a legal trade in it. They have to show that they have a provenance. They had been removed from a country prior to the 1970 UNESCO convention with some variation depending on country. But that's essentially when there was a, a global uniform policy on the way that the antiquities trade took place. But that 1970 date is often um, fudged. You see a lot of provenance that came uh where items came out of the country in 1969 and have a a dealer with no name. And so this is the kind of thing where (laughs) there's a lot of ways to make it easy to launder these items into the market. And you add, you add social media to that. It also cuts down um, the number of people between looter and ultimate, you know, end market buyer that this item has to change hands and it makes it easier to streamline that process yeah, it makes it instantly global in the way that I can't imagine would have been possible, you know, given language barriers, a much less geographical distance. Yes. And the language barriers that you bring up is an incredibly important point because with these technologies, we have auto translate. If you are on Facebook, yeah, you can click right. the you know, translate button and see something in another language. Given in Arabic, it's not great and it may not make sense. So you, you have to really be able to understand what you're looking at. But for instance, if you are a buyer in Turkey, 
and you're trying to buy something from a trafficker in Syria and you speak Turkish and your seller speaks Arabic, you can use that translate function to help you communicate um, interest in a piece. And that is one of the really important things we've seen. Um, we see the names of some of these private Facebook groups where this activity is taking place are actually listed in dual language. Um, some are oh, in wow. Arabic and English. Some are in Turkish and Arabic. Um, some are in, uh, you know, Thai, depending on the region that you're looking at. And so this is really a global enterprise and it's being facilitated by social media. And I don't know what kind of figures one could apply to this because so much of it is, it's underworld. It's a bit shadowy, but can you give us a sense of the scope and scale of this problem, whether it be geographical dollar value, you know, volume or percentage of antiquities that are coming to light, you know, whatever, whatever is, is possible to quantify. Well, that is interesting that you bring that up because it's one of the most debated topics in this fairly new area of study looking at um, trafficking of antiquities around the world. There are a lot of guesstimates as to the, the global illicit market, but we don't actually even have reliable numbers for the legal global trade in the antiquities oh. um, sold at auctions. There are a lot of art market numbers that come out, but they include um, all manner of art. There's not actually a statistic broken out for antiquities. And so with even the legal market difficult to pin, that makes it virtually impossible to really understand the, the volume of cash exchanging hands on the black market. Because even if we look at what's been caught by customs around the world, it's only a fraction of what's actually out there. Um, that's one of the fascinating things about this, this Facebook trafficking network we've identified in the MENA region because it's massive. It's way more people than we would have expected engaged in something so openly online. For instance, the author project is currently monitoring over 125 different Facebook groups dedicated specifically to looting and trafficking antiquities. These groups are also um, divided up by region. So for instance, we'll see some groups that are based in Syria and the majority of active group members will be from Syria, Turkey, Lebanon, and people they can actually go meet with in person to exchange uh, goods okay. and, and cash. Um, and you see the same thing with North Africa. You'll see groups where a lot of the group members are from Tunisia, Algeria, and Morocco. And again, this has to do with on the ground existing networks. But in the past, even just a decade ago, if you wanted to sell an antiquity, let's say you are digging in your backyard and you're in um, Syria, you want to you want to find an artifact. You find an artifact. You know it's valuable. You know that people pay money for this, but you don't live near a tourist site. You're not going to be able to run up to somebody and offer it for sale. And that's not really how it happens anyway. So how are you going to get value from this item that you found and know is valuable? You have to know a, a network to get that item into. And in, if you're in a small village, you're going to go to the, the local gangster um, who oh, is going to pay you a lot less for this item than uh, the eventual American who might buy it. But what's going to happen is you're going to have to do a lot of um, 
in-person connection, finding out who that is. You have to almost do an investigation to, to figure out who's the person that's going to buy this. But now you just hop on Facebook and get in one of these groups and say, I have a mosaic as available. I'm based in Aleppo. And you'll get 15 people who will comment and say, we're in Aleppo. I'm nearby. Um, I'm interested. It's like the local Facebook groups that, you know, help find lost dogs for people. Yes, except in this case, the lost dogs are trafficked antiquities in um, sometimes in conflict regions. <laughs> so that's something that um, we've seen increasingly on the platform. And in, in a lot of cases, particularly for larger items like coffins or mosaics, these items are offered while still in situ, while still in the ground. They'll seek buyers before even putting in the labor to remove that item. And is that to make sure it's going to be worth their while, Katie? Why do you think that is? Exactly. And it also makes it easier to not get caught if you're not hiding a, a massive uh, mosaic in your oh, house. Right. Makes sense. Um, again, just like the looters of the ancient world would have somewhere where they'd stash stuff, people have tactics today to stash things so they're not seen. So a tactic of looters in Egypt is to build makeshift um, brick structures around a hole that they're looting. And that way, when they house the items in it, um, it's not suspected. Nobody saw the looting happen because there was already a structure built around it. In some cases, people actually dig right through the floor of their living room because the ancient world flourished across the Middle East and North Africa. And there are literally layers of history beneath your feet. Anywhere you stick uh, a shovel in the ground, you're likely to turn up an ancient artifact. And that's something that people are aware of and, and really engage in this. But the countries where this is taking place, um, it is illegal to, to conduct that activity. And not just legal, it's really personally dangerous. Um, we're talking about unstable excavation, architecture on top. You're digging into a tomb. There's a lot of things that could go wrong. And tomb collapses do happen, and they do happen quite frequently. Dozens of people a year die from collapsed tombs uh, while trying to, to steal artifacts. It's a very dangerous profession. And that also shows you the risk that people are taking when they engage in this activity. They know that they could lose their lives just by trying to get to an item. And that's something that um, it's a risk that people take every day. And that's, that's before even considering what would happen to them if they're caught. And this is where we see criminal networks that are really taking advantage of people who are more, um, more financially desperate and maybe looting out of necessity because they don't really have a choice but to undertake that risk. Uh, you know, if you are in Syria, for instance, and you're trying to feed your family, looting and risking your life that could yield something that could help you pay your family tonight is your only chance. So these people are really preyed upon by, by criminal gangs, by trafficking networks who um, can exploit them for that labor and exploit them for that risk when ultimately they're the ones who will get the payoff. And that is something that we see. We see it with extremist groups. We see it with warlords. Um, we see this happening across the region. And Facebook has actually made it easy for those, those networks, those criminal groups to put that material right online where anybody can find it. So listening to this kind of dazzling network of characters involved in this modern trafficking industry, 
I, I just got to wonder who, who is making the most money on these transactions and exactly how does that, that money transfer take place? Do we know? Well, it depends on the level. You know, we're not just talking about uh, something comes from the ground, goes to a middleman, and then it goes to the end buyer. That sounds much more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> and so as a result, um, you know, those layers may make more money depending on the risk undertaken. So somebody moving a mosaic from Syria to Turkey across the border is taking a way bigger risk to themselves personally in terms of getting caught than the middleman in the local town that they bought it from. Mm -hmm. And yeah. as a result, the price increases as you go up the chain, you get closer to the end market. Um, you know, one of the biggest misconceptions, uh, unfortunately, for people who do undertake a lot of the looting activity and, and the risk on the ground to themselves is that these items are valuable. They see what they're sold for at Christie's or they see what it, you can get even a, a coin for on eBay. You can sell a coin for thousands of dollars if it's the right coin. Um, and so they assume that that is the value that they're going to get by taking the risk to seek out this item. And they're going to get many times lower the amount that they're assuming because ultimately that value doesn't get to its, its peak until the end of the chain. You know, and this, this makes me um, want to ask you if you could talk a little bit about, about the implications of all of that, of, you know, the fact that these, these really um, unempowered individuals who are at the bottom of that food chain who participate in this trade out of necessity, but really get very little out of it. What, what are the kind of cultural and social implications of this activity? You know, in terms of cultural heritage, sure, that's a big piece of it, but, you know, local economies and security. There, you know, there are several things that you have to consider when you, when you think about what someone's doing when it comes to the average villager who's looting uh, anywhere in the region. For one, there have been looters on record who say they feel like they're stealing from their country, but they have to feed their kids. So you have, you know, the one example where people don't really blame each other because it's simply something they have to do. But then you have the other side of this where there's a religious side. And there's also people who, because they're disturbing graves where people are buried, they're worried about jinns, which are, are spirits, for instance, that protect the tombs and could curse them and could make their lives miserable by way of, of breaking into this tomb and disturbing this grave. Because it's not just artifacts uh, and gold that are valuable these days. People actually sell mummies, um, the, the body of someone that they've found. We've seen mummies offered for sale on Facebook. Uh, the U.S. Customs Service has returned mummy parts to Egypt that were trafficked here and had been stolen from the country. This is something that is, is fairly common, but the people who are undertaking the dirty work of actually going into that tomb know that they're disturbing a grave. So there's also, you know, a lot of, a lot of deeply held beliefs that, that they're concerned about. There's a lot of folklore around what will happen to somebody if they open a tomb. Um, 
and so you also have that element of it. And so there's, you know, the, the psychological risks that you're undertaking. Um, and, and this is where it, it becomes a, a much more complicated issue than simply bad guys stealing stuff because not all people are doing, not all people are lifetime criminals who are engaging in this activity. Uh, unfortunately, those, those are people who are being taken advantage of by lifetime criminals. Um, and it's a much more complicated illicit trade than uh, just tomb robbers and people trying to put something in a museum. <laughs> uh, and right. I think that that's, that's lost in a lot of um, discussion around these issues. And for Athar Project, for instance, we get asked often why we redact people's names and faces if they're engaging in criminal activity online. Um, if they're doing it on a public platform and they're, you know, it's illegal, they should be exposed. But it's a lot more complicated than that. And so exposing somebody's identity um, without understanding the drive behind why they're engaging in that activity is, is unethical and irresponsible. And so we make an effort to protect people's identities regardless of it, if it's something that others can find online. Um, and, you know, so you have that added element of the internet <laughs> that makes it much more complicated as well. Uh, you have fake identities, you have people using someone else's identity. You have- Right, um, right, right, right. Happens yeah, all the so time. You can, <laughs> you can never be sure that the identity that you're looking at in terms of the name and the face is the person that's actually conducting that activity. Um, and as such, it's not responsible to unmask who that person is. You said that so much of this trade is moving westward and generally speaking to wealthier countries. This makes me wonder how much the colonial past of this part of the world really, you know, is kind of playing into their modern implication in this transnational trafficking. Well, that's an issue that, you know, we're still seeing today. Uh, you see the issue of um, statues looted from Africa during the colonial era now being sold by museums in Europe as they're deacquisitioning because of the pandemic. Um, but it wasn't theirs to sell. These are items that were forcibly yeah. taken from right. other countries. And this is, a, this is a much bigger conversation and probably its own podcast, um, let alone its own episode. Are you uh, offering? Because I would talk to you anytime. <laughs> I'm so enjoying this. I'm hanging on every word. All right. Well, I'm going to take that as a hopeful maybe. I would talk about this anytime. And there's a, a great universe of experts who, you know, have been have been looking at this issue of, of the implications of colonialism on cultural heritage. And, you know, we see that with uh, the the time period between ancient tomb raiders and modern ones, you have um, Westerners doing archaeology in places like Egypt. Yeah, of course. Uh, for instance, uh, the Italian Egyptologist, if you want to call him that, he was more of a looter, uh, Giovanni Belzoni. He dug his way through Egypt and was destroying everything that he went through. There was no preservation of context. There wasn't just study. He was looking for gold and looking for monuments, um, really not unlike Tomb Raiders of the Ancient World. But that even that, that 
activity wasn't feeding back into Egypt. Um, things that he, he found would be sold or removed from the country. Um, take the bust of Nefertiti, for instance. Uh, it was a German expedition. Oh, the, the famous one. It turns up everywhere. We all know what this looks like, right? It's the beautiful colored one. It, in, it's in the, the museum in Berlin. People travel from around the world just to see that item. And this is where the, the colonial history, the damage can show because should it be Egypt that's seeing that tourism and the revenue from people seeking out their own cultural heritage? Or, or how about the real Rosetta Stone, which is in the British Museum? Right? Exactly. I mean, we get to see the replica at the Museum of Cairo. I mean, that's a little crazy. We certainly see uh, the Egyptomania that came out of uh, the early 20th century has carried through as people seek to decorate their homes with a piece of the past, often a piece of someone's grave. And particularly in, in the US, in the UK, in Europe, there are wealthy people who, who can afford this more than you see in, um, in developing countries, which is why the end market is in these places like the US, where people can afford it and it's legal to trade if you can get away with it. Yeah. So are there any governmental or other official organizations in place today, whether East, West, or anywhere, that are looking to combat this modern-day looting? There are certainly dozens of organizations that focus on protecting cultural heritage. Um, but I think making efforts at protection versus um, what law enforcement can do is a <laughs> there's a big schism there um yeah and in in the u.s for instance the united states has begun implementing um memoranda of understanding which are agreements between the state department and a country like egypt which stop the import of antiquities from that country from from being allowed to come into egypt what these essentially do is shift the burden from the person um, from the country where this item is coming from, which it used to be Egypt would have to prove that that item was documented to have been in their country and that it wasn't, you know, moving as part of a, a, a bigger legal item. Um, but in the case of items looted straight from the ground, that documentation didn't exist. So countries that have had major issues with looting and trafficking will request these MOUs. Um, they'll do it with the U.S., with other countries in the region to make it easier for them to scrutinize uh, imports of a particular trade. And with Egypt, this has been uh, successful. The U.S. Customs Service has um, seized lots of artifacts coming from Egypt. Um, actually, even prior to the MOU, there was a, a operation by Homeland Security Investigations called Operation Mummy's Curse. Oh, that's quite a romantic name for. <laughs> um, and there was another one called Operation Mummy's Hand. They're very good at coming up with the names. Um, they're a little cheesy, but they're very good. <laughs> and I like them. I like a little cheese. We're talking about entire beautifully painted wooden coffins that had been looted from Egypt found in a garage in Brooklyn. And these are the types of items that, that Homeland Security Investigations has been able to seize and return to Egypt. Um, one of the coffins, for instance, now sits in the Egyptian Museum uh, in Cairo. That's and that's something that um, 
it shows how important it is for the repatriation of these objects. Um, that, that we're seeing these types of repatriations around the world. Uh, we also see them, a lot of them come from the US, the Hobby Lobby case famously, um, the Museum of the Bible had to return uh, thousands of tablets to Iraq in actually several successions now. One, one collection that resulted in the return of thousands of items to Iraq was, uh, you know, it just gives you an idea of how big the market is for this stuff. Amplified yeah, by thousands of buyers and particularly lifelong collectors, you have a lot of material moving hands. Uh, you know, and you mentioned that this is something I've been really wanting to ask you. So we understand that it's shocking to see the scope of trade on Facebook, openly conducted on Facebook, 125 individual groups at least engaging in it. Um, and it's horrifying that it is that widespread. But is there, a, is there some kind of silver lining in the fact that they are so publicly doing this? I mean, it's documentable. The one silver lining for us has been the ability to document. And that's really the nexus of what the author project has been focusing on is documentation. Um, particularly for the material that's being offered straight out of the ground. In many cases, this is the only proof that it ever existed, and we have the benefit of a, of a timestamp right there on those posts. Do you think, I mean, are they this um, arrogant, and it's just been going on so long that they, they haven't put two and two together, or they're just running it down until the window closes. I mean, what do you make of that, that they're doing this in such a flagrantly public fashion? There are no repercussions, especially if you are using a fake profile. No one's going to be able to identify you and the platform you're uh, engaging in this activity on, if the platform you're using to facilitate this trade is, is not clamping down on that activity. So why would you stop? It's a free platform. It makes your life easier um, and it makes your trafficking smoother. Um, and that's something that's one of the reasons that uh, we partner with the Alliance to Counter Crime Online who are pushing platforms to take more accountability for the fact that they're facilitating uh, really serious organized crime online. And they're not just a passive host, but this crime is only possible at the scale it's happening because of the social platforms facilitation. Yeah. So what is loud and clear in this conversation, Katie, is that social media platforms need to make some big changes in the way that they um, monitor or fail to monitor this kind of illicit activity online. It's obviously, it's not limited to the illicit trafficking of antiquities, but um, it's, it's certainly a huge area where I, I just think there's, I'm going to just guess there's not anywhere near the kind of public general public awareness as there is about, say, um, trafficking in endangered animals. You know, that's a much more, I think, mainstream cause that people are aware of and, and rightfully behind. So what can those of us who are just, you know, individual people who might participate in social media for personal reasons do? How, how, do, the, how do the individual people concerned about this make a difference too? Well, one of the things that you can do uh, now that Facebook has 
expand the sale of antiquities on the platform. If you see something suspicious, you can report it and you can make sure you report it um, as a violation of Facebook's community standards. The more okay. that these things are reported, um, the more awareness there is on the people who read through those reports that they should be taken down and making sure that, you know, you're reporting not just antiquities trafficking, but really any of the illicit activity that you're seeing. Um, that's step one. Um, but there's also bigger, bigger things that you can do. Um, if, if you travel, if you go around the world, uh, a lot of people who are interested in your show, I'm sure are travelers, try not to engage in buying um, illicit antiquities. There are a lot of red flags for an item that uh, may be suspicious. If somebody in a jewelry shop offers you something that's kind of hidden in the back and it doesn't necessarily have a, a proper export certificate, that's not the kind of item you're going to want to buy. If it has dirt on it, maybe you want to think twice. <laughs> I'm exactly. sorry to make if it's a, a bad joke, dirt, but uh, you know, as an archaeologist, that's of course what I think. Well, that's what it looks like out of the ground. Yeah, maybe maybe we should leave this one behind. Exactly. You don't want to, um, if, if, it, if it seems too good to be too price-wise, it's something, what? You can buy this ancient artifact for a couple hundred bucks and stick it in your bag and go? You're not going to want to do that. You don't just want a certificate of authenticity. Sure, a lot of times these items are authentic. That doesn't make them legal. And I think that, um, you know, when you're looking at e-commerce platforms and they offer this certificate of authenticity, it's not a proof of legality. And so that's also something to keep in mind, even if you're browsing online on a, on a site like eBay, um, keeping in mind what the legality around those items is and not just the authenticity. Could you elaborate a little bit on a really striking statement that you made um, that borders don't exist anymore when you have digital communities. So one of the things about social media that's great is that uh, we can be connected at the click of a button to anyone anywhere in the world. For me, that's, I have family that's in Greece, and it's one of the few ways I can communicate with them. Um, you know, with, with no borders and technology, you're able to share languages, you're able to interact um, and, and families and friends are not the only ones who are able to do that. Criminals are using that same technology to engage and interact and allow those borders to melt between them at the click of a button. Uh, and that's, that's been really apparent in the work that we've seen um, with traffickers on Facebook and other social media platforms. These borders dissolve and it makes the movement of any goods much smoother and, and nobody's really looking. Um, that's the thing is that you see so little engagement on these issues. Uh, certainly on wildlife trafficking, we've seen some moves in terms of arresting people for trafficking through social media. Uh, but when you think of things on Facebook like disappearing stories, it, it makes it really easy to erase your crime. And without doing things on the ground, there's no, there's no tracks to follow. There's no borders to cross. Everything was happening online. Do you see any possible way forward for using our newly interconnected digital world for good uh, in, in this arena specifically? Well, certainly there 
is already a lot of good that's still happening on the part of um, activists who are working in this area, who are working to protect antiquities in places like Egypt. There's a lot of online education that's happening. Social media is being used to bring awareness to wider populations about the importance of protecting these items, um, the importance of keeping their communities preserved and complete. It's opening new opportunities for scholars to engage across borders. And that, that aspect of social media is still critically important. Um, but there needs to be more uh, responsibility to deal with the, the crime in these, uh, in these digital spaces. Because without dealing with that, the voices of the activists who are fighting so hard are going to eventually get drowned out. And that's something that, you know, support your, your local heritage activists, follow them, amplify their message, because it's so important to ensure that we, we have a chance in this fight to protect heritage. Katie Paul, it's been amazing to talk to you about this incredibly important, and I would argue, um, relatively little known topic. We're going to be sure to um, provide links and information for our listeners who want to learn more about this and more importantly to know how they can join your very important work in trying to combat this illegal antiquities trafficking. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Karen. Whatever the motivations driving ancient tomb raiders or today's antiquity racketeers, the effects on cultural heritage, national economies, regional security, and the daily well-being of already vulnerable populations is devastating. In a time where connecting with criminal activity is as easy as logging onto Facebook, priceless artifacts are trafficked across borders that essentially dissolve in a world more interconnected than ever before by digital technology. As shockingly central players in criminal exchanges of all kinds, social media platforms need to be held accountable for the illicit activity they host. Corporate suits and ordinary users alike need to stop enabling those able to pay what it takes to get what they want while turning a blind eye to the catastrophic domino effect of these illegal transactions conducted in real time and in plain sight online. We're all responsible for recognizing that cultural heritage is a cog at the core of transnational criminal activity. As always, thanks for listening. Take care, everyone. And, you know, take extra care next time you check in on your likes. We all can make more purposeful use of social media to help us build a safer, more just, and better connected world for everyone. Hey there. You can follow today's guest on Twitter at Anthropolicy. That's policy, P-A-U-L-I-C-Y. And to find out how you can contribute to the fight against illicit antiquities trafficking on social media, visit the Antiquities Trafficking and Heritage Anthropology Research Project on Twitter at A-T-H-A-R Project, or visit www.athaproject.org. Oh, and read more about Katie and her work in the article, Facebook's Looted Artifact Problem in the Atlantic. It's more than a little awesome. This episode concludes our first season. We're going to be taking a brief hiatus, but don't worry. We'll be back with loads of new episodes for season two on October 2nd.
Spies, sailors, tiger hunters, blacksmiths, gladiators, ministers, and alchemists are just some of the topics we'll be exploring next. In the meantime, we'll be on social media with plenty of exciting show updates and additional content. Please share your thoughts and questions with us at Working OT Series on Twitter. And if you like what you've heard so far, leave us a review and share the show with the history lovers in your life. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back before you know it. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan LaLiberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on Instagram at Working Overtime Series. Thanks for listening, and remember to like and subscribe.